0: welcome back crimeaholics it's your host holly and today's monday which means another missing monday but today's episode is going to be a little bit different than our typical missing mondays If you can't tell just from the intro of this episode, I am a little bit under the weather. I've been fighting with what is believed to be a sinus infection that has then turned into pink eye that then spread to my kids and it's just been about a week's worth of misery. So this episode is actually going to feature one of my very special friends in this podcast community, and her name is Leah D from Least of These. She is an incredible human. If you have not heard of her podcast, Least of These, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you guys go and check her out after listening to this episode. I think you're going to find that her style is very much like my own, and she's just a really incredible special person that does amazing work for not only her victims that she covers but for the community that she lives in as well for those that are new to the podcast I am so sorry this is the first time that you are hearing me speak I promise I don't normally sound so I don't even know how to describe this but missing Mondays is a segment that was created to help keep missing persons name and information in the media the best we can and to hopefully help aid in their return home 90,000 people are missing in the. US at any given time and while some are found alive or deceased the majority are still missing today that is why it's so important for us to make sure on every single Monday we cover a new missing person no matter how little or how much the information is out there about their case they matter to us and we want to share them with you so without further ado I'm not going to make y'all listen to my voice like this much longer I'm going to go ahead and give you guys over to Leah D from Least These on today's Missing Monday case.
1: Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you the case of Shelley Mook in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Let's get right to it. Shelbyville, Tennessee is a small city located about 50 miles southeast of Nashville. Shelbyville is pretty rural as far as a city goes, with rolling hills and the Duck River flowing along the southern and eastern side of the town. However, it is known for two things. It's the unofficial hub of the Tennessee walking horse industry and was nicknamed Pencil City back in the 50s due to the number of pencil manufacturers that called Shelbyville home. Today, despite the nickname, you'll find only one pencil factory left in the town, but Musgrave Pencil Company has been a staple in Shelbyville for 106 years, and still going strong, providing jobs to the local area and pencils to the United States. And Shelbyville is the place Tyler and Shelley Mook lived towards the end of their six-year marriage. But it wasn't where their story began. Actually, it was far from it. Shelley and Tyler were high school sweethearts. They had met while attending General McLean High School in Erie County, Pennsylvania, where Shelly was from. And Shelly, it seemed, was instantly smitten with Tyler. He was charming, she was beautiful. Y'all know how this story goes. According to Shelley's best friend Brittany Brooks, as she spoke to WKRN, the couple married in 2004, the year after Shelley graduated from high school. They exchanged vows in Hawaii, the ceremony was picture-perfect, and the pair seemed happy. And their marriage wasn't the only thing they had to celebrate. As it turned out, Shelley was pregnant, and the Mooks would soon go from a party of two to a party of three. According to those that knew him, family was very important to Tyler, especially his own, so they settled down in Bedford County, Tennessee, to be close to his family. Their daughter Lily was born, and Shelly was over the moon excited to become a mom. She continued her education, earned a teaching degree, and quickly landed a job in the Bedford County School District. On the surface, everything appeared perfect. But it was far from it. According again to Brittany, the Mook's marriage was rocky, and it had been from the moment Shelly found out she was pregnant. After six years of marriage, Shelly had had enough, so she filed for divorce, and in 2009, it was granted. Despite the divorce, Shelley and Tyler did share a daughter, so they had to maintain contact in order to co-parent Lily. But without Tyler there to hold her back, it seemed Shelly was out there living her best life. She had an excellent job, a beautiful six-year-old daughter, and the support of her family and friends even if her family was way back in Pennsylvania. Despite the distance, she was always in contact with them. In late February of 2011, she had made another exciting step in her new life, a move from Shelbyville to an apartment in Murfreesboro. The move put her further away from her job as an 8th grade reading and language arts teacher at Harris Middle School, but it also put distance between she and Tyler who lived off Old Nashville Dirt Road just outside the city of Shelbyville. Shelley had a few loose ends to tie with the new apartment, so according to The Charlie Project, she had taken a few days off to complete her move. She made arrangements for a substitute teacher to cover her class on Monday, February 28th and Tuesday, March 1st, 2011. The following day on March 2nd, Shelley was scheduled to be back in her classroom, but she didn't show the principal of Harris Middle was instantly concerned because this wasn't like Shelly. By 8.30 that morning, school officials had exhausted every way they could think of to get in touch with her. However, no one was able to reach her. Her ex-husband, Tyler, reported her missing not long after that Wednesday morning when Shelly didn't show up for work. He claimed he had last seen her between 3.30 and 4 o'clock p.m. on Monday, February 28th after she dropped off six-year-old Lily at his place. And that Shelly was upset when she dropped Lily off because she had suspicions her new boyfriend was cheating on her. According to Tyler, Shelly was at his house for about an hour, and then she left to run some errands, promising she'd be back before 10 p.m. to pick up Lily. She had left Tyler's house in her 2006 White Pontiac Grand Prix, but Shelly had never returned. It didn't take long before investigators tracked down Shelley's car. In fact, they already had possession of it. They just hadn't connected the dots yet. As it turned out, Shelley's car had been found at approximately 12.30 a.m. on March 1st, abandoned in an empty farm field off US-41A, otherwise known as Manchester Highway, just southeast of Murfreesboro. But when it was located, there wasn't much left, because the car had been intentionally set on fire. Accelerants were used, and all that was left was basically a skeleton of what had been Shelley's Grand Prix. Initially, police didn't think much of the discovery of the car. Their theory was that someone had likely stolen the car, took it for a joyride, and set it ablaze to destroy the evidence. Or maybe it was an insurance scam. The damage to the car was so severe that all they had to go on was a VIN number, and it didn't appear to be high on their priority list. That was until Shelley Mook was reported missing. With the missing persons report and the discovery of the car, word got around town fast, and rumors ran wild that a body had been found. But was that true? Investigator Brian Cruz put all those tall tales to rest when he spoke out to the media Thursday night informing the public that a creek near where the car was located had been searched, but nothing of interest had been found. He further stated, Shelly has an ex-husband that lives in Bedford County. As far as we can tell, he is the last person to see her when she went to his house to drop off their daughter, and that she was supposed to meet a maintenance man at her new apartment on Monday afternoon at 4.30, but according to the landlord, she never showed up. Again, Shelly wasn't the type of person to just miss an appointment or not show up to work. Her family, friends, and everyone who knew her was concerned. The search was on. Shelley's mom, family, and best friend in Pennsylvania drove straight down to Tennessee, frantic to find her. Flyers were hung to anything that would sit still long enough, describing Shelly as 24 years old. 5'7", 160 pounds, with blonde hair and hazel eyes. Last seen wearing a black short-sleeved sweater dress, white leggings, and black suede boots. A $10,000 reward was offered by Shelly's family for any information. And while almost everyone who knew Shelly was desperate to find her, according to family and friends, there was one person who never lifted a single finger To get out and search for Shelly. And that was her ex husband, Tyler Mook. It seemed police may have had some suspicions early on as well. Days after Shelly was reported missing, a mobile crime lab descended upon Tyler's home. Investigators haven't revealed if anything of interest was found, but Tyler sure got out of Dodge quick, reportedly moving out of the home hours after it was searched and in with his parents. A week passed, but there was no sign of Shelly. And if investigators had any leads to go on or were making any progress on Shelly's missing persons case, they sure weren't disclosing it to the public. Shelly's family wasn't going to sit around and wait either. They knew something was wrong. There was absolutely no way Shelly would have walked away from her brand new apartment, job at the middle school, everyone who knew and loved her, but most of all, her daughter Lily. Shelley loved being a mom more than anything. And Lily is quite literally a carbon copy of Shelley. The same blonde hair, hazel eyes, dimples, and beautiful smile. Not only were they twins in appearance, they did everything together. Shelley would have never just up and left like that. On March 7, 2011, a strength vigil was organized and hundreds attended to pray for Shelly's safe return. Shelly's mom, Deborah, made an appearance on the Nancy Grace Show the next day on March 8th, asking for anyone with information to come forward. She revealed that not only was she concerned for her daughter, Shelly, but also her granddaughter, Lily. Why? Because her ex-son-in-law, Tyler, was not allowing her visitation, despite the fact that she was on the list at Lily's school and had permission to visit and check her out, Tyler forbid Deborah from spending time with Lily. He sure picked a hell of a time to put a screeching halt to visitation. Deborah wasn't going to let it go down like that, and that same day she appeared on the Nancy Gray show, court documents reveal that she had filed an emergency petition seeking visitation with her granddaughter. A hearing was scheduled just days later, and by March 23rd, an order signed by the judge granting Deborah visitation of Lily on alternating weekends. The MOOCs, being Tyler and his parents, Kim and Jim, filed some motions after the order, but Deborah's visitation with Lily continued. At the same time, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation came in to assist in locating Shelly. Searches of multiple locations throughout the area were conducted. But as far as we know, they didn't turn anything up. While Shelley's family and friends, local authorities, the TBI, and the community were all looking for her, you might be wondering what ex-husband Tyler was up to, you know, besides trying to stop the family of the missing mother of his child from seeing her. According to TBI spokeswoman Kristen Helm, as she spoke to the Chattanooga Times Free Press, Tyler Mook, quote, gave an initial statement to local law enforcement right after Shelley disappeared and his home was searched. However, he has not been cooperative since that time. Helm went on to say that Tyler Mook was considered a person of interest. With Tyler refusing to cooperate, worries about the welfare and safety of Shelley's daughter increased. In July of 2011, Shelley's mother Deborah took things a step further. And according to court documents, filed an amended petition to exercise the parental rights of her daughter. You see, way back in 2009, during divorce proceedings, primary custody of Lily had been awarded to Shelly, with Tyler receiving only visitation. With Shelly missing, Deborah went after full custody. On July 21, 2011, everyone gathered in the courtroom for a hearing on the custody case and what was revealed left many stunned. Numerous witnesses testified that Tyler Mook had a history of illegal drug use, drug trafficking, violent behavior, and verbal and physical abuse towards Shelley. Let's talk about it. As far as Tyler's history of drug abuse and trafficking, the court found that several witnesses established a, quote, Pattern over the years of the extensive sale of illegal drugs by Tyler with as much as three pounds of marijuana being sold in one transaction. Further, there were consistent stories of the marijuana being stored in the freezer at Tyler's home, even when the child lived there. And that the credible history of drug sales continues into the time period since the divorce, some of which was as recent as 2010. Several witnesses called by Deborah testified to Tyler's involvement in illegal drug use and drug dealing. One witness was a man named David, who purchased a home Tyler owned in Pennsylvania. Well, let's just say David got a little more than he bargained for, and after purchasing that home, he testified that he found marijuana hidden in cans inside vents in the house. This dude forgot the weed he had hidden in his own home. Another witness, Bedford County Sheriff's Deputy Tim Miller, who just so happened to be assistant director of the 17th Judicial Drug Task Force, testified that he investigated Tyler for drug trafficking and that Tyler had actually admitted to involvement in the marijuana business. There was also that one time, somewhere around 2009, When Tyler Mook was arrested by the Bedford County Sheriff's Office and charged with theft of property over $1,000, an alteration of a serial number, after he stole what's described as a pricey piece of farm equipment, it had taken investigators a year to trace the equipment back to Tyler, according to the Shelby Times-Gazette. Former co-workers of Tyler's at a Walmart distribution center testified that Tyler couldn't even hold down a position at Wally World due to explosive anger issues. He had been fired from the center after threatening one co-worker and getting into a physical altercation with another. And Tyler's temper wasn't just reserved for his co-workers. Several witnesses testified to incidents of domestic violence between Tyler and Shelley and to the fact that Tyler had an explosive temper. Shelley's childhood friend Brittany Brooks, who actually lived with the couple in Tennessee for a time, testified that she witnessed Tyler both verbally and physically abuse Shelley. And further, she frequently saw bruises on Shelley's neck, wrists, and arms while she was married to Tyler. Brittany said that she had confronted Tyler a few times about how he treated Shelly and Lily, but had never reported the abuse to officials because she was afraid of what Tyler might do. However, on one occasion, she had spoken anonymously with a law enforcement officer and voiced her concerns. Two other friends and former coworkers of Shelley's testified. One told the court that she had also seen severe bruises on Shelly's neck during the marriage and that those bruises looked like fingerprint marks. And the other testified about an incident when Shelly and Lily were going to be staying the night at her house. While the court documents don't expressly state that this was an unplanned sleepover, likely due to issues between Tyler and Shelly, it seems this might have been the case since this co-worker, Shelly and Lily, made a trip to Walmart to pick up a mattress so Shelly and Lily had somewhere to sleep. They were on their way back to the co-worker's house when Tyler started chasing them down in his vehicle. He was driving erratically, swerving towards Shelly's car, causing her to have to swerve into the oncoming traffic lane to avoid a wreck. He eventually chased the three down at a red light and blocked Shelly's vehicle in so she couldn't leave and then got out of his vehicle and started walking towards Shelley's. The co-worker called police and Tyler was eventually arrested, but no charges were ever filed. His daughter Lily was in that car as he allegedly chased them down, seemingly with no regard for the life of his now ex-wife, her friend, or his own little girl. Tyler was called to testify by Deborah. But he repeatedly asserted his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination during questioning. And when it was his turn to present his side, he never took the stand on his own behalf. Let's get this straight. Instead of taking the stand and pleading his case with the court for custody of his child, he pled the fifth because isn't that what any father who wanted custody of his daughter would do? While it seemed Tyler wasn't putting up a fight for custody of his own child, or at least not the kind you'd expect from a father who wanted to be in his daughter's life, his parents were. If the court didn't award custody to Tyler, then they asked to be next in line. They were the only witnesses who testified on behalf of their son. Both Jim and Kim Mook said that Tyler was a good parent. And as far as the allegations of abuse or violent tendencies or drug trafficking, well, they sure as shit didn't know anything about all that. And further, they presented nothing to refute any of those allegations. And as I'm sure you've figured out by now, the legal action taken on the part of Shelly's family was twofold. First and foremost, they wanted to ensure Lily's safety. But they also knew that with a civil custody case comes a deposition. Tyler would be questioned about his missing ex-wife and the events leading up to her disappearance. They might get something to go on to help them find Shelly. What they couldn't have known is that just as he had done in open court, during depositions, Tyler Mook invoked his Fifth Amendment right roughly 150 times. But he did answer a couple questions, and the ones he chose to answer were mind-boggling. We'll get there in just a hot minute, but first, the custody ruling. The court found that when it came to Tyler Mook, a, quote, pattern of thievery, of -of out-of-control anger, of domestic violence, and an inability to hold down jobs existed. There was also concern with Tyler choosing not to testify and invoking his Fifth Amendment right. See, in a criminal court case, invoking the Fifth Amendment can't be used against you and no inferences can be made due to one invoking their right. But that is not the same for a civil proceeding such as this one, and the judge or jury can legally make a negative inference from invocation of the Fifth Amendment when there is independent evidence of the fact that the party is unwilling to answer. Tyler Mook never disputed any of the claims of domestic violence, drug dealing, or anything else for that matter. So it came as no surprise that Tyler was deemed unfit to parent. The court found he posed a substantial risk of harm to Lily because of his dangerous temper and danger of exposing the child to drug dealing, drug use, irresponsible driving, and exposure to undesirable associates. And his parents were also found unfit because it seemed they were more worried about covering their own son's ass than Lily's safety. That's not a direct quote from the court, but that's basically what they were saying. Shelley's parents were given permission to take Lily back to Pennsylvania with them, and Tyler would still be granted visitation. Supervised visitation. Let's get back to that deposition. As I said before, Tyler invoked his Fifth Amendment right on most questions. Even basic ones like, On February 28th, did Shelley come to your residence with Lily? He couldn't answer that. But when the question was asked, did you have sex with Shelly on February 28th, Tyler responded, yes. The attorney followed up with what time and Tyler answered robotically as he would 150 times. On advice of counsel, I respectfully declined to answer on the grounds of the Fifth Amendment. So he wouldn't answer if she was there, but they did have sex. But what time? Oh, no, he couldn't answer that. According to CBS News in another hearing on the custody case, Tyler revealed a little more, saying Shelly came over that afternoon and that they spent over an hour talking about the problems in her life. Tyler claimed she broke down crying over a boyfriend who may have been cheating on her. And then, according to Tyler and Tyler alone, they made love while their daughter Lily was in another room. Shelly left to do some errands and left Lily with him and promised to be back before 10 p.m. But she never returned and he spent that entire evening with Lily. When Shelly didn't return, he claimed he texted and called her but only got one text message back from her around 7 p.m. It said, I will, babe. I will what? Nobody knows. Tyler's story didn't make a whole lot of sense. Was it possible? Pretty much anything is possible, but was it probable? Shelly was moving on with her life. A new apartment, a new relationship, a fresh new start for her and Lily. And further, according to Kevin Keel, a former cop turned private investigator hired by Shelly's family as he spoke to CBS, Shelly didn't just show up at Tyler's house to talk to him about her life. She was there to return a box of belongings she had found. And further, Tyler's story did not line up with what Lily had revealed to a child specialist who interviewed the little girl after her mother's disappearance. Lily revealed that on the day her mother went missing, she and Shelly went to Tyler's house. Shelly got out of the car and left Lily inside the car. Shelly went to the door, appeared upset, and then went inside. That was the last time Lily saw her mother. After some time, Tyler took her out of the car and in through the front door. She was placed in her old bedroom, the door closed, and according to Keel, given instructions not to come out. Needless to say, things weren't looking good for Tyler, and it was about to get so much worse. Of course, the Mooks weren't happy about the custody agreement placing Lily primarily with her grandmother, Deborah, and they appealed the court's decision, which was denied. And that must have really got their panties in a wad, because in November of 2012, the Shelbyville Times-Gazette reported that Shelley's mother, Deborah, had been awarded a temporary restraining order in October, preventing Tyler Mook and his parents, Kim and Jim, from having any contact with Lily. The Gazette obtained copies of court documents which claimed that Lily had told her counselor that Kim and Tyler Mook had talked to the child about burning down Deborah's house so that she could live with her father. According to WSMV.com, not only was there talk, but Tyler Mook and his mother Kim put a box of matches in Lily's bag and told her to set fire to Deborah's home. It's pretty clear the apple didn't fall far from the rotten ash tree and the Mook family, and the bullshit didn't stop there. Because as this custody battle raged on, two 911 calls were placed to the Franklin County Communications Center in Tennessee. The first, an accidental call placed by Tyler Mook, as he was having a conversation with his dad, Jim. A butt dial, if you will. Most of the 22 minute call is inaudible, as the call was placed as Tyler and his father were having what they thought was a private conversation while working with power tools. But CBS News obtained the call and posted the excerpts that could be understood. Tyler can be heard saying, They know that I'm not going anywhere right now because I don't have Lily. His father responded, They can't prove nothing. Tyler says, and they know there's a better chance of me leaving with Lily. But like I told mom, they think I'm, they know I'm going to stay in the United States. They can find me. I can live out. Then there's something that cannot be made out. And then he continues. I told mom, they want to come arrest me with a warrant. At another point in the call, Jim Mook stated, you've done your job. They've trampled all over your rights. They did everything humanly possible, the situation as it was. And then what Jim says next is too garbled to understand. But he ends with, someone's going to pay for this. Tyler responds, oh, they've already got a bunch of people lined up. They already got people seeing me leave that night. Oh, they've seen Shelly's car going down that road that night. Oh, somebody seen me walking down the road in the middle of the night. Tyler also talks about a car, saying, Something keeps bothering me about that car, and they're going to try to bust me with that. What car could he possibly be talking about? And then there was the second 911 call. This time, it was intentional. According to True Crime Daily, minutes after the first call ended, a second call was placed. Tyler Mook called back and asked the operator, Did you get a call from this number a couple minutes ago? When the operator informed Mook that they had indeed received an open line call from his cell phone, he inquired. What happens on that open line? Does it get recorded and stuff like that? Does it get recorded and stuff like that? He didn't call back to apologize for the mistake, to let the operator know he was okay, and not in need of police, fire, or ambulance. This dude had called back to find out if this conversation had been recorded. You can hear the concern in his voice. And maybe he should have been concerned. After all, he had dialed 911 at the precise moment he was seemingly talking about his missing ex-wife when he thought no one besides his father was listening. He never planned for this conversation to be aired on an episode of 48 Hours. Oh, but it was. Anyhow, not long after this incident, Tyler made good on some of the things he had discussed with his father. He stayed in the United States, but he did move all the way from Tennessee to the great state of Florida. He bought himself a fast boat and started over. That's where he met 25-year-old Robin Dunneth. The two pretty quickly headed off and started a relationship. And I've just gotta say, Robin looks a hell of a lot like Shelly. Both women strikingly beautiful with long blonde hair and light-colored eyes. And they had something else in common. Robin also had a young daughter of her own. When they first met, Tyler introduced himself as Tyler Cook. And everything was perfect. He was good looking and charming and Robin had no idea about his past in Tennessee. And according to Robin, as she spoke to 48 Hours, she saw a future with him. But that was all about to change real quick and in a hurry. And it started with the name on the side of Tyler's boat. Robin recalled the incident to True Crime Daily, stating, I saw a name on the side of the boat, Mook Racing, and I asked him what that meant. And he said, that's my last name. And I said, I thought you said your last name was Cook. No, I was just joking. It's Mook. Who the hell jokes about their last name? Robin didn't find this joke too funny either and searched Tyler Mook online. That's when she found out all about his history in Tennessee and his missing ex-wife. She confronted Tyler with everything she had learned, but Tyler wanted to tell his side of the story. So Robin agreed to meet with him at a local bar. The pair met up and Tyler told her not to believe everything she reads online, that none of it was true. Robin recounted to Crime Watch Daily that Tyler was a smooth talker, and she really wanted to believe him. He was just so damn convincing, and Tyler had never been aggressive with her, at least not yet. Maybe he was right, maybe everyone else had it wrong. She would soon come to regret the decision to stay in a relationship with Tyler on October 4, 2014. It all started out innocent enough. On that day, according to the TC Palm, Tyler, Robin, Tyler's brother Andrew, and Andrew's girlfriend had plans to take Tyler's speedboat out to the Stuart Sandbar to have a good time and unwind. And the Stuart Sandbar is the perfect place to do just that. It's located on the East Coast, inside the St. Lucie Inlet on the bayside of Sailfish Point. It's known as one of the best boating locations in Florida with crystal clear water plenty of places to anchor, and hop out and swim in relatively calm waters. But Robin would never make it to the sandbar that day. According to True Crime Daily, she arrived to the Sandsprit Park boat ramp a little late. When she got on the boat, she noticed that quite a bit of day drinking had occurred prior to her boarding the boat, and Tyler was angry with her for being late so he gunned the boat and sped down the St. Lucie Inlet. Robin yelled for him to slow down repeatedly, warning him that he could hit a sandbar and kill everyone aboard. This enraged Tyler further. Robin recalled what happened next to True Crime Daily. He shut the motor off, and then he grabbed my sunglasses off my head. I was trying to call my mom, and he grabbed my phone and threw it under the cabin and he threw me over the boat into the water. I thought he was just joking, and then I felt him jump in behind me, and then he grabbed me and turned me around and held me under upside down. I somehow got up and I got one huge gasp of air, and then he grabbed me and put me under right away again. I just kept fighting and fighting, and that time I thought I was going to die. I was just pleading with him to please let me go. He came after me again. That's when I yelled, Andrew, please help me, and then he pushed me under again. Thankfully, Andrew heard Robin's cry, jumped in the water, and pulled his brother off of her. Robin spotted another boat headed in their direction. She flagged them down and told them, He just tried to kill me, pleading for a ride back to shore. The other boaters scooped Robin out of the water and took her back to the boat ramp. Robin reported what had just happened to police, and Tyler Mook was originally charged with battery and arrested, but quickly bailed out by his mother. I mean, are we even surprised at this point? That charge was later increased to attempted murder in the first degree, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. Mook was arrested again, booked in the Martin County Jail, and held on a $100,000 bond awaiting trial. The trial began in March of 2016. The prosecution laid out its case, stating that Tyler clearly intended to drown Robin when he threw her off the boat and repeatedly held her underwater. And it was all premeditated. As we all know, premeditation can be formed in an instant, and Tyler, first removing Robin's sunglasses and snatching her phone before throwing her overboard, showed a level of premeditation. The prosecution called his brother Andrew to the stand, who, according to Assistant State Attorney Kristen Chase, as she spoke to Crime Watch Daily, didn't want to testify and was getting pressure from his family not to. But Andrew did the hard thing and took the stand, telling Chase, at the end of the day, he loved his brother, but had to tell the truth. Andrew sat on the stand. She yelled for me, yelling when she came up he's trying to kill me. He told the court how he jumped in after his brother and placed him in a chokehold to get him away from Robin and made him get back in the boat. Andrew's girlfriend would also testify that when the whole thing went down, she heard Tyler say, no one disrespects me in front of my family. I will kill her. The defense claimed that Tyler wasn't trying to kill anyone. And they could prove it because Robin didn't need CPR. His defense attorney stated, When you hear what happened, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Robin was able to yell for help. Robin was able to scream for the other boat. She didn't need mouth to mouth. She didn't need to be resuscitated. She didn't need CPR. She got back on the other boat. I shit you not, that was the crux of the defense. Surprise, surprise, Tyler did not take the stand in his own defense. Tyler Mook was found guilty of the lesser-included charge of second-degree attempted murder and sentenced to 12 years in prison in May of 2016 with credit for two years served while awaiting trial. He is currently known as Inmate K90349 and serving out his sentence at the Everglades Correctional Institute in Miami, Florida, with a projected release date of January 1st, 2025, according to Florida DOC records. As Tyler Mook stood trial for the attempted murder of Robin Donneth, there was someone else in the courtroom there to support her. Someone grateful that Robin had survived, but heartbroken that after all these years, she still has no clear answer as to what happened to her daughter, or even where she is. That someone was Shelley Mook's mother, Deborah. Shelley Mook is still missing. Despite the searches, the civil court, the private investigator, and the endless quest for answers, her daughter Lily has been forced to grow up the past 10 years without her mother a mother who loved and adored her more than anything else in the whole world while it's been 10 long years investigators haven't had much to go on other than what was discovered all the way back in the beginning although private investigator kevin keel has uncovered a few more additional details we know that Shelley mook was last seen on february 28 2011 sometime between 330 and 4 p.m. when she stopped by Tyler's home on Old Nashville Dirt Road. Shelly didn't show up for her 4.30 appointment with the maintenance man at her new apartment. Her 2006 white Pontiac Grand Prix was recovered burnt down to the frame and an empty farm field off US-41A the following day on March 1st. After giving a short statement to the police and the search of his home, Tyler Mook moved out of his house, in with his parents, and stopped cooperating with police. According to PI Kevin Keel as he spoke to CBS News, to his knowledge, Tyler Mook has never been interviewed in depth about Shelly's case. Keel also revealed to 48 Hours that Shelly's cell phone last pinged at about 7.30 p.m. on the day she vanished off a tower in Beach Grove, Tennessee. Roughly 20 miles from Tyler's home in Shelbyville. Beech Grove is an unincorporated town in Coffee County and a place Shelly seemingly had no business going to because there's literally nothing there. Keel told 48 Hours that he personally didn't think she was there, at least voluntarily. He was also able to uncover video surveillance from the early morning hours after Shelly went missing of Tyler Mook's red S-10 truck from a convenience store several miles from his home. On the tape, the S-10 is shown stopping at the dumpster at the store for roughly 5 to 10 minutes. Kiel turned this evidence over to the TBI. We know all about the history of domestic violence, the strange butt dial to 911, Tyler and his mother allegedly attempting to convince Lily to burn down the house and the attempted murder of Robin Dunneth. And that Tyler Mook is the only named person of interest in Shelly's case. The new boyfriend she was seeing at the time and the maintenance man at her new apartment were both cooperative and cleared by police early in the investigation. And we know that Shelly deserves justice. She didn't just walk away from her family and her only daughter and the responsible party or parties need to be held accountable. Which brings me to something else Kevin Keel pointed out. He doesn't believe whoever is responsible for Shelly's disappearance acted alone. Stating to WSMV News, they absolutely would have had to have help in disposing of her vehicle. Whoever disposed of Shelly's car would have needed a separate ride back. He went on further. That would probably be like 20 to 25 miles. Just absolutely too far for one person to drive there, dispose of the car, and walk back in the middle of the night. It's something we've thought all along, that there had to be at least two people involved. At least. Someone knows something and it's beyond time to talk. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Shelley Mook, please call the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-TBI-FIND. Again, that's 1-800-TBI-FIND. Shelly's family has created a Facebook page to post updates on the search and as a place for friends and the community to gather to honor Shelly. Search Find Shelly Jones MOOC on Facebook. One more thing before we go. If you or someone you know are caught in an abusive relationship, please don't suffer in silence. Resources and help are available 24-7 at thehotline.org. You can also reach them by phone at 1-800-799-SAFE or text the word START to 88788 to be connected to help instantly. I'll be sure to link this information in the show notes. As always, you can find more information about this case or any of the other cases I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these podcasts. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because I'll be bringing you an all new case next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time. Be good to each other.